what I'm really happy is that we can end with a solution, which is offering honey without bees. I think people will be happy knowing that honey can still be on their choice, but sustainably made without animals would make them really feel like they're heroes. Because what's happening in the honey production requires all of us to be heroes so that we speak about that and, and change and abandon the system. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast where we discuss the latest innovations and the remarkable stories of people who are changing the vegan world. Joining me today is Darko Mandic, CEO and co-founder of Mali Bio, an award-winning food technology company based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Darko is an impact entrepreneur who is passionate about changing the way we produce and consume food in order to sustainably feed 10 billion people with nutritious foods while protecting the planet's keystone species, the wild and native bees. Originally from the Balkans, Darko earned a bachelor's degree in economics from the FIFA facility, which is affiliated with the Harvard Business School in Serbia. His career in the European food industry began in 2012, and since then he has been responsible for managing and growing honey companies in more than five countries. From that experience, he also discovered his dream to reinvent the honey industry and to make it sustainable. In 2019, he moved from his native Serbia to the United States to launch Malibio. Melibio is an innovative company that produces honey without bees. By harnessing the power of microbial fermentation, they create real honey that is identical to the honey produced by bees, but without the environmental impact. Their unique technology has been recognized by Time magazine as one of the best inventions of 2021. As an entrepreneur, Darko is dedicated to advancing science to make the food system sustainable, scalable, and animal-free. I'm very excited to welcome Darko Mandic to the podcast and talk about the future of alternative food production. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Darko. What a pleasure to sit down with you and hear your story. Hi, Robbie. Hi, everyone from San Francisco. Great to be here. My name is Darko Mandic. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Malibio. Uh, we are the world's first company uh, using science to make real honey without bees. And uh, the Malibio team is very excited to deliver the future of honey that's sustainable, delicious, nutritious, and animal-free. I think there's this general awareness that bees are being jeopardized. What many people don't know is the specifics of the story around bees. Humans figured out how we can domesticate bees. And when I say bees, there's only one bee species called Apis mellifera or European honeybee that's being domesticated. People put honeybees in beehives and use them for honey production and pollination. So what's happening with the bees is that there's this rapid decline of bee biodiversity that is actually generated by the overpopulation of these domesticated European honeybees that humans artificially bred to meet the demand for honey production. So it's like an unfortunate turf war and it's honeybees being sponsored by humans by being artificially created in a way that when introduced into ecosystems that they've never been before, they leave no space for bumblebees, green metallic bees, blue orchard mason bees to survive. Before we get started, as always, I'd like to ask my guests this first question, which is how did you discover the plant-based or vegan lifestyle? Where did that all begin for you? It was definitely a journey for me. And that journey had 
certain steps. Definitely the first step of the journey was to become really curious about the power of plants and really to start thinking about the opportunities that we have with plants that are maybe not as communicated in the mainstream as they should be. I think it was um, 2018 or 2019. At that time, I was uh, living my life in uh, Serbia, Southeast Europe. I started noticing more plants coming in the menus of, of restaurants, even in a you know region that's very meat and dairy heavy. So definitely, I think restaurants were something that started and chefs started to pique my curiosity around the plants. After that, I started picking up on news uh, coming from the US and UK about you know all these startups trying to make life easier for people by using plant ingredients to make food that looks like a food that uh, was commonly known. I would say that's the beginning of the journey. And then, you know, learning about it, um, having also my interference with animals in, in the food production helped me think of my role. And, you know, all of that was compounding. And one step at a time, I think that seed, that <laughs> seed of plants started growing in my mind that let me, uh, you know, turn plant-based. What was the sort of pivotal moment? Was it a documentary? Was it a friend? Like who who actually, because obviously back then, even, you know, even back then, 20, 2018, I think you said, things were, weren't as mainstream as they are today. It's 2023, especially in the UK, and I know in a lot of parts of the US as well, every restaurant has a vegan menu. Most supermarkets have several really popular vegan products. But back in 2018, it definitely wasn't as popular. Yeah, what, what was your sort of like entry point? I know you mentioned media and stuff, but was there anything else? Yeah, I would say three important moments kind of collided and there was a, there was a certain space between them. One is a professional you know, knowledge around the industry that I've been part, which is the honey industry that makes honey using bees. There was this article by Wired magazine that goes like, you are worrying about wrong bees. That was something on a professional level that made me think and reconsider my my role and my career and um, how I should think of these creatures in a new way and not to use the industry uh, form narrative that's false. Um, second to that, I, I started noticing that some of the high-performing athletes started talking about plant-based. I've been following at that time tennis a lot. I've been following Novak Djokovic. He's a Serbian tennis player number one, and I, I have a huge admiration for, you know, his journey, you know, starting from, you know, poor and undeveloped country and, you know, conquering a very difficult sport that requires a lot of stamina and a lot of endurance. And uh, learning about him switching plant-based was really, was really amazing. And finally, I think uh, uh, what really pushed me was the Game Changers movie, uh, you know, really seeing that, uh, amazingly produced movie that's also documentary, a reference with all these studies, seeing the best people in their industries and sports that really need to be strong and healthy. And, you know, seeing them, I think that was the biggest, the biggest push. So the combination of those three, you know, professional, private, and, and, and the Game Changers movie. When I made the switch to a plant-based diet, I qualified for my third Olympic team. I broke two American records. I was like, man, I should have done this a long while ago. When I went plant-based, I wasn't sure if I was going to survive. And I actually became like a machine. 
One of the biggest misconceptions in sports nutrition is that we have to have animal protein to perform at a high level. That's just not true. Sometimes you have to do things that you know your competitors aren't doing. Today's blood and yesterday's blood. I think this is going to wake a lot of people up. I was recovering better, not getting as sore. This was our best season in the last 15 years, and we had 14 guys on plant-based diets. We all want to feel great, have more energy. Cholesterol was 276. Today, 169. Whoa, now you're talking. Most guys my age can't keep up with the grandchildren. My grandchildren can't keep up with me. It's not one set of dietary guidelines for improving your performance as an athlete. Another one for reversing heart disease, reversing diabetes. It's the same for all of them. Someone asked me, how could you get as strong as an ox without eating any meat? And my answer was, have you ever seen an ox eating meat? Documentary is amazing. That's, we talk about it a lot on the podcast, about how it's inspired. It has the power to inspire so many people. Um, I'm hoping we can chat about a documentary about bees and the importance of protecting them sometime. I'd love to discuss that with you after the podcast. But obviously doing research on you, found that you have a career in the food industry, which is obviously a very complex system of you know, interconnecting industries and businesses. But what, what made you get involved in the food industry and what was it like working in it? Usually everything starts when we're kind of kids. Certain information get to be planted in our conscious and subconscious. And for me, that information that was planted was growing up, seeing my family owning a small restaurant in the Dalmatian coastline, seeing people uh, running around with food and seeing this, the emotions and, 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 and I dare to say vibes that get created around the table and people getting together to eat food. I think that was, that was the first first seed that was planted in my mind to think about joining the food industry. What part of the industry were you working in? You know, was it food services, food technology? Where, where did you fit into the big machine? <laughs> I love that. I love that piece. You know, before the food industry matrix uh, got me invited to join, you know, that passion for food uh, existed, but equally represented, there was this passion for entrepreneurship and building stuff and, you know, taking part and joining, you know, companies and organizations that um, have an impact. I went to business school and right after my business school was done, I was offered an opportunity to join one of the biggest food conglomerate companies in Eastern Europe. And I was assigned to be a management trainee in their honey division company. Amazing. And what was that like working? Because obviously, corporate culture is uh, not for the faint-hearted, is it? It's a very rigid and can be quite a suffocating environment. But that's my experience. How was it for you? There's been a lot. That period was so much formative. It was helping me think about the world around us, helping me interact with people. I think my first day in my first job was August 20th, 2012. And I remember a day before my first day at work, I didn't know anything about honey. I, I just wanted to join a team that I think has big goals and that wants to do something with a product that I didn't find any controversies at that time about that product, you know? 
showing up at work on the first day was me learning for the first time that there are multiple varieties of honey. I always thought about honey, you know, it's it's honey. I didn't think about floral, forest, mountain, summer, you know, spring honey. So it was a journey about learning about the product, learning about how a food company operates. And then obviously as the time was passing by, learning about that little wonderful creature that at that time was the only possible medium of producing a product that's sweet, that makes people, you know, honey makes people satisfied. And I do have a sweet tooth and I am the person who would always opt in for an amazing dessert, <laughs> such as baklava made with honey versus any savory meal, you know. So a couple of things happened there, Robbie. And for me, that just keeps reminding me of the speech that Steve Jobs had at Stanford, which is about how at some point looking back, we realize how the dots connected, how every tiny dot connected and formed something that that's a whole. So that was my start in the honey industry. I'm glad to hear that you had such a positive experience. I I speak to many people who who don't speak kindly of the corporate food world, nor any corporate industry for that matter. It, It doesn't really allow often it doesn't allow people to have individual thought and creativity. And it can, it can actually ironically make people feel a little bit like worker bees right? Where everyone has their part to play and you don't step outside of your role uh, and you will function within the hierarchy with the queen above and then you below. Now, that being said, I really like what you said about people skills. Um, I've worked in the corporate industry from the age of about 19 to the age of about 35, something like that. And I learned a lot about how to interact with people, how to be professional, how to think, how to plan. Uh, I learned a lot about business and strategy. um, And that's actually, you know, those are irreplaceable skills. You can't you know, you can go to college and university and try and learn these things, but there's nothing better than working on the job and learning how to strategize and plan and think, and also to motivate and work with people as well. You know, to be an efficient worker bee, one needs to learn to get along with others. Human beings are all different, like bees, and I'm really going to ask you to tell us a bit more about bees in a sec. But I have read that bees, like ants, you know, all have individual personalities or traits. Like they can be quite creative individuals, can't they? Rather than, I think a lot of people see bees as this sort of group hive mind that all act in unison, but that they don't have any individuality. But how unique are bees? And tell us a little bit, a little bit more about like the inner world of the bee kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, Robbie. When you were sharing these words about bees and, and, you know, individuality versus hive mind, you know, we're now getting into philosophy. So I hope people don't mind. But, you know, I think philosophy is an underlying foundation of everything that we're doing. Remember when we are on a plane and the plane is about to land and it's afternoon or it's night and you're about to land in Amsterdam, New York, London, um, any of these kind of busy airports. So if someone who has never been human is placed on that plane, it's their first experience. You know, if there's a, you know, alien creature just teleported in a plane and the first thing that they see is the plane landing when you get to see those cars and the highways and the runways wouldn't wouldn't the fe- the first feeling be oh this is a this is a hive because you get to see cars going in one way the other way all of that looks like looks like something that from afar it's very well organized so i think th- the same thing happens with the bees because we see them from afar we are kind of scared of them. Humans are scared of bees. 
we see how they operate. We see these videos where they, you know, move in a certain direction, do the dance, interact. But once you actually get to see a bee very close, you start to realize there are different species of bees and you can start appreciating how maybe a same species of two bumblebees also looks somewhat differently. So that that reminded me of that analogy because I think that it's up to the quality of the optics and the position of a perspective of point of view that can actually provide that attribute of something being, uh, you know, a collective versus an individual. And I deeply believe that our purpose on this planet as human beings is equally developing and equally important on an individual and collective level. And um, I think we can learn so much, so much from the bees. We just need to start uh, looking at them closer. Unfortunately, as with other animals, we had to think of ways how those animals should serve some of our short-term interests so that we get to learn their capabilities. Unfortunately, it's 2023 and the war is happening in Europe. But there's this story where um, certain military experts actually taught bees how to show military where are the mines placed. So uh, when I read about that project, I think it was done by NATO, I was really amazed because thinking about the complexity of, you know, finding something like that and, and kind of assigning that to an animal such as a bee is just showing about the cognitive abilities that bees have that we're probably yet to discover and appreciate. That's incredible. I mean, I never knew that they have used bees to find mines. Transparency in the food system is very necessary, especially knowing that uh, we are really updating the food system of today to create it to become better for tomorrow, to serve us all, to be safe, to be delicious, nutritious, and to be scalable. So with that in mind, around our process, I can share that first and foremost, we start with the same plants that bees visit. And we are working with those plants in a way to turn them into a product that has the molecular composition that's identical to the real honey that's made by the bees, just made without bees. So it's it's essentially uh, learning how bees interact with plants, observing that, creating a proprietary process that can help us access plants and get those nutritious stuff from plants that bees usually get and taking that back, plugging in science and technology in a way that we essentially just take the animal off the equation of honey production. They are smart and, and, and curious creatures, but let's talk a bit about the environmental impact of, of the honey industry. It's, you know, I don't know how much honey is consumed worldwide every year and how much money it, is, it costs to produce it. But then also the environmental cost as well. Let's talk a bit about that. Like how is um, the production of honey affecting our planet? People don't have a clue that it's such a gigantic industry. Uh, last year, it was a $10 billion industry. In a few years from now, it's going to be a $15 billion industry. Numbers mean something to people who think of industries in forms of numbers. But I like to share a different story so that people can actually realize uh, the importance of, of honey as a product. If you're in the Netherlands, next time you walk into 
some of the Dutch retailers or, you know, in any country, just um, take a look at every product category in food, beverage, and cosmetics, you'll find at least one product containing honey. So there's a bar with honey. There's a soda with, with honey. There's even bourbon and whiskey with honey. There's a face cream, lip balm, wet tissue honey flavor. There's a honey as a standalone product. There's honey in ice cream. There's honey as sweetener in so many applications. So really, the size of honey is measured in honey being present as a part of so many products next to honey having a standalone position as a jar or as a, as, as a, as a plastic bottle. And the, and the product itself, obviously, what, what, what kind of damage is it having to the planet? Because obviously we do want to move away from it. You know, how are these bees farmed en masse? And, and is it having any, does it have a carbon footprint? Is it, you know, like animal agriculture, like farmed animal agriculture, it's dis- destroying rainforest through deforestation for planting soy crops and it's poisoning rivers through a river acidification. Does the industry itself have any of those similar impacts? The biggest impact that honey production has on this planet is the impact it has on our uh, biodiversity. Learning about that was something that was kind of an epiphany moment for me because at that time I was doing my career in the honey industry. I left the first company that I joined and I worked for a few more all over Europe, Serbia, Romania, Spain, uh, Norway. Uh, I've been making sure that companies connect with beekeepers and that they get the best possible honey that's being produced. And at that time, learning about its impact was, it, it was a difficult moment for me, Robbie, as I believe is for every person who is open to rethink their position, open to a new knowledge and a new set of information, and someone who is not stuck with something that just someone else shows on you. So for me, the honey industry narrative was, Darko, you're doing a great job. The more honey you sell, the more bees will get to work. And basically by employing the bees, you're giving them kind of a life. And that, that was, that's the narrative of the honey industry. That narrative is one of the biggest lies, Robbie, that exists today. Again, making honey using honeybees is one of the biggest greenwashing that exists today because honey is only made using a subspecies of bees called honeybees, Apis mellifera. Their full name is European honeybees. They are native to Europe, but not native to other places in the world. And using honeybees to make honey, and we're going to talk about how they are treated and everything that's wrong about and everything that they go through in that production. But I just want to say that whenever honeybees are introduced in a habitat where they haven't been present before, they create this unnatural competition between other pollinators and specifically wild and native bee species. And there's 20,000 of them. So there's honeybees versus 20,000 other bee species. And whenever they're introduced by humans, by beekeepers, they create a situation where no other pollinators can thrive. And learning about that turf war and learning about that human honeybee invasion on our biodiversity and bee biodiversity and learning that I've been part of that, 
that was a very eye-opening moment for me. And I had to do something about it and, and, and change it. So if you just think about if there's something that vegans and, 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 and non-vegans and, and scientists can get together around the facts is that over-competition between artificially created colonies of honeybees and wild and ATB species is bad for the planet. If there's one reason why we shouldn't be increasing honey production using bees is because of that. And then, you know, we're happy to talk about the life of a honeybee that didn't choose to be the part of that, you know, industrial mechanism employed that would be, by humans. That would be yeah. great. Yeah, absolutely great to talk about that because I think as vegans and as new vegans, there's a lot of people who are interested in the lifestyle. It's one of the biggest questions we get. What about honey? Isn't it a byproduct? Or can't we share the honey with the bees? You know, human beings can be greedy creatures. We're not very good at taking just enough. We always want to take more and have more and more and more. And, you know, the, how shall I say, the, the mass consumer food industry likes to produce large quantities of products. And, and then this is where we get factory farming. And you could say bees, in a way, are factory farmed, I imagine, because you create huge colonies, as you say, which cause huge damage to the biosphere, to the natural surroundings. And you, know, you cause these, I like what you said, turf wars. Just imagine these bees like fighting, having turf wars, which is probably exactly what happens. But tell us a little bit about, you know, the worker bees and then the queen. You know, what are, what are some of the experiences that these creatures go through and why, from a vegan perspective, from a, from a perspective of compassion, why it's so cruel or why it's so unnecessary? Thank you for that question, Robbie. And uh, I'm, I'm going to walk everybody through what actually happens within that, you know, commercial scale, what actually happens in a beehive. Uh, but what I'm really happy is that we can end with a solution, which is offering honey without bees. So I think I think people will be happy knowing that honey can still be on their, their choice, but uh, sustainably made without animals would make them uh, really feel like they're heroes. Because what's happening in in the honey production requires all of us to be heroes so that we speak about that and, and change and abandon the system. So first and foremost, a beehive is a, it's a usually wooden box. The hive of today has been per, uh, perfected in the 18th century in parts of Europe, Slovenia and Austria. And also there was a American priest in Pennsylvania who had his invention around the beehive. Beehive is basically a box that traps bees inside and puts them to work. In that work, bees make honey, which is food for you know their fellow comrades, their their fellow species creatures. And humans take that honey at the end of the honey season. In the making of honey, a couple of very bad things do happen. First and foremost, every beehive has a queen. And for that queen, to be inside, beekeepers clip their wings and trap it into a box and have it to serve in terms of increasing the colony size. Worker bees work around that queen and uh, whenever beekeepers approach beehives, they smoke them so that bees don't become too aggressive. Smoking bees is basically, I think I read a study that a smoke what smoke does to bees is an equivalent uh, of humans taking humans being given a dose of LSD that they wouldn't be able to process in no possible 
no possible way. So it's basically drugging, wow. <laughs> drugging the bees. Sounds terrible. It's it's terrible. And then when they make this food, what is being done in the commercial beekeeping is that because honey is expensive product and beekeepers want the every last drop from a beehive, what they usually do is they squeeze every last drop of honey. And to keep the bees alive, what they do is they replace honey with a cocktail made of just plain sugar and, and water. And bees are malnutrition. They can't survive on that. If, uh, you know, cold winter comes, you know, all the colonies die. And it's it's really bad, Robbie. It's It's something that we as humans should become aware of it and should start thinking about how do we speak about this every single day and how do we work towards abandoning these practices and especially in times uh, like 2023 where we can make our food without animals almost all the products so far uh, that animals make i've seen in in animal free version well this obviously leads us nicely on to your current endeavors i've got on my notes here melly bio but then your t-shirt says melody so have you changed your company name that's a that's a great question we're still Melibio. Melibio from San Francisco Bay Area is the world's first company to work on science that will teach us how to turn plants into honey without the interference of the bees. It's pretty much a very cool science, nothing Frankenstein. Basically, we start from the same plants and, and turn them into the same product that's matching honey on a molecular level. It's it's very, very, very close. The closest that we were able to to to, to make it. Um, so Melibio is the company. Melody is our recently launched plant-based honey brand that we debut at Expo Vest in Anaheim in March 2023. And this is our consumer-facing brand because we started as a, a B2B, like business to business company to serve the wider food industry. But in that journey, we also realized that we do want to replace all of that honey that's part of the mentioned products that you can find in supermarket that I was speaking about earlier. But I also and the team also felt that we also want to have a consumer story that we own and the narrative that we create. So uh, company name will remain Malibai and we're going to be you know, partnering with many food companies in a in a desire to join uh, a bee mission, to invite them to join a bee mission and help them, you know, with various food products, starting with honey and who knows, maybe some other products. Uh, whereas Melody is our consumer-facing brand that people already can see um, in on the menus of restaurants in the U.S. and also through a direct-to-consumer uh, partnerships that that we have right now. So uh, tell us a little bit about what actually is honey, because obviously, you know, when you eat honey, it's very sweet. Uh, sometimes when it's cold, it crystallizes, um, but it has a very unique flavor. It has quite unique properties. It's allegedly antiseptic, antibiotic, antibacterial, and has a number of other superfood qualities. Some people say whether this, this is true or not. Uh, you can never tell with the food industry. There's always these yeah. big claims about food and you never really know if it's uh, actually scientific or not. But I mean, obviously to establish the name, it's quite interesting. I like Mel. Mel is the Latin name for 
uh, honey. Is that is that right? Um, and you often see it in the back of food ingredients or cosmetics. You'll see the word mel. So if you are a vegan and you're trying to avoid um, honey in your cosmetics, just look for the M-E-L. Let's be Ant-Man and let's zoom in. <laughs> let's shrink ourselves and zoom in to honey on a molecular level. If you can describe it to us, like what actually is it? You know, th thank you for educating consumers. And and if you see Mel and if you see actually Melody, just uh, just stick to it. If it's just Mel, yeah, look 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 for Melody. That's uh, that's hundred percent vegan, cruelty free, and no animals, no bees were ever part of our process except for us. You know, just putting them on this place of a huge respect and inspiration for us. As someone who has been now 11 years part of the honey industry, I can speak about that product having a superiority over other sweeteners. I never think of honey as being the medicine for any kind of cures because this is not a pharma industry and this is not a drug. This is a food product. What I'm showing here to you is a almost one, uh, one kilogram um, of, of plant-based honey under Melody brand in a bottle that matches whatever honey in nature brings. Let's talk a little bit about what's the composition of honey. Honey is made of essentially three parts. Sugars that are native to honey, water, and non-sugary part, which is actually the biggest strength of honey. Sugars in honey are fructose and glucose, and those are the sugars that are naturally occurring in honey. And those sugars we were able to take from plants and add into this product. Um, there's obviously water and there's a lot of powerful compounds coming from more than 30 plants in this product that are actually not sugars. I actually believe that some of those compounds are really amazing, are yet to be uh, discovered in the mainstream, are yet to be used in many applications. And that's something that I honestly think makes honey superior over agave, maple, and other and other sweeteners that exist. That, that was my notion, Robbie. I felt like vegans deserve the best. And I felt like until we had a solution for vegans, vegans would always choose something that they would make compromise over the taste and, and, and performance so that they help the world become a better place by alleviating pressure and harm. And now when, you know, something as close as possible to real honey comes in a, in a vegan option, in a cruelty-free option, now I really invite everybody to be totally fine getting back to honey, getting back to Melody. I'm I'm curious to know how honey actually is made because a lot of vegans you hit you'll see people in the comments of social media going don't eat honey it's bee vomit obviously it's cruel but they say it's bee vomit <laughs> what actually goes on inside a bee how do you go from plant pollen which is what bees gather and then we have this miraculous product what's happening between the plant and then the bee in that in that process how does it actually make the honey I love that question, Robbie, because it makes me get into get get back into an anatomy classes and, and, and biology that I had in school. Bees visit flowers, and what they essentially suck, inhale, is nectar and pollen. And then through a very complex anatomy of a bee, that nectar and pollen gets broken down into the building blocks of honey, which are the fructose and glucose. And it's being done by bees regurgitating to each other 
and, and passing on that, that substance. So thinking about the vomit, it, it, it makes sense to think about it, but just knowing how bees are cute, I, I've never thought of that vomit being, you know, vomit, vomit. I've always been thinking about how lovely they are and how amazing those creatures are. And us putting them to work in tiny boxes was always the thing that I found disgusting after waking up to a awareness that we can't do that anymore. So it's a good motivator. You know, those creatures are really amazing, man, especially bumblebees. They're so furry, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever they're up to, whatever they make for themselves as a food, you know, obviously I want that, you know, if it comes in a way that uh, made them only observe that and, and cheer for us, not participate as a labor. So a while ago, I wrote something on social media that went completely viral. I got millions of like shares and it, it was really popular. Um, I can't remember exact, the exact words, but I'm going to paraphrase. People often think about nature in such a meaningless way. People look at insects and ants and, and bees and, and think they're kind of worthless and expendable. People won't think twice about crushing a bee or stepping on an ant. And they say humans are the most important creatures on earth because we can paint paintings and build buildings and create symphonies. And when people say that to me, I say, can you do those things? Can you create paintings and write symphonies and build buildings? And most people say no. The most precious creatures on this earth are probably the insects because they're the ones that keep our food on our plates. They're the ones that keep the flowers blooming. They're the ones that keep the fruit growing. Without them, there would be no human society. And I genuinely believe that bees and insects are the most important creatures to us. And we should be respecting them, protecting them, and celebrating them because they're essential. They're like little magical machines. They're not machines, they're living beings, but they are like little machines that work away tirelessly, day in and day out, not taking any rest to do the tasks that they have evolved to do. And I think that when people realize the importance of just a single insect and respect and revere a single insect like a bee or an insect, then their whole worldview changes. And this is, to me, the very core of veganism. It's a mutual respect and compassion for all life, not just the cute animals, not just the cows and the pigs and the chickens and the pandas. <laughs> it's the bees, it's the insects, it's the worms. You know, our world is filled with life. Billions of years of evolution has resulted in millions of species, wonderful species on this planet, and a million of those species are at risk of extinction because of animal agriculture. In the UK alone, we have lost 50% of our insect populations in the last few decades because of, and in some parts up to 90%, because of pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. Bees are, obviously, we can talk a bit more about that, how the you know, bees are threatened by these pesticides, these chemicals. And we obviously talked a lot about the inner life of bees. But we haven't talked about the damage that animal agriculture, you know, these crops that are grown to feed cows and chickens and pigs, how those pesticides, I've forgotten how to pronounce it, like nucleo something amide. There's a neonics, um, neonics. That's the one. Yeah. Do you know much about this? And can you talk a bit about like the threat to a lot of insects and bees from these chemicals? I'm I'm not expert in, in, in pesticides, but I can definitely talk about things that I fully agree with you. We've gotten into this mindset of creating crops that are mostly created not to feed people, but to feed animals. 
and th- then animals are being transferred into food. You know, if 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 we if we just forget about veganism for a second, think about the efficiency. The efficiency of growing crops and feeding them to an animals that you process into food. It's such a inefficient way. What I really love is that that even capitalism, as in its cru- in the in its cru- cruest and, and rawest form, wouldn't support animal agriculture because it's inefficient. So this need for growing crops for animals resulted in this obsession with uh, yields and obviously inappropriate overuse of wrong products, wrong pesticides created this situation where uh, bees suffer a lot. I I think there's a lack of education in the agriculture. I think no one can actually control. It's a monster. (laughs) It's it's crazy, you know. I want to be cognizant. Spending 11 years in in the food industry, I'm aware that one important thing, which is we have to think that we have to work to feed 10 billion people that this planet will have. And we can't be feeding our planet of everybody having their organic garden and expecting that that's going to be enough. That's great. That's amazing. I support. We need to make sure that we make food for everyone. But making food for animals and turning them into our food actually created this world in which this drive for pesticides is also also harming the bees. You know, it's 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 really it's hard. Facts say going vegan is the best way that someone can do for themselves and, and the planet. And going vegan can help this planet, bees, um, animals, humans in um, such a great way. But for some people, going vegan and thinking about animals uh, as equal is really hard. So when I talk to people like that, and I really want to talk to everyone because I think the more we can do to raise awareness and include people into into veganism, when I talk to to people that think that humans are better than insects, I like to play on their ego and I like to say, okay, if you really believe that humans are the best and the and that humans, you know, can do so many things, don't you then agree that humans can also learn about facts out of a position of acquiring knowledge that you believe humans do better than insects? Why don't you just, you know, acknowledge from that perspective that we depend that on those beings? So from an ego perspective, if you already think that as an individual you are more important, uh, don't you then agree that you have the ability to evolve to accept the facts? That's that's how I like to turn the story around when I talk to a lot of people that are not vegans, because a lot of people are not vegans, and I want to make sure that a lot of people get their steps, become vegan curious and then vegan and, and help this planet. And sometimes, uh, you know, playing uh, with taking the the explanation by using things centered around them and their egos can actually help sometimes. Let's touch a bit more on your product, Melody. How do you make it? Is it, is it, a, is it a cell-based product? Is it precision fermentation? Is it a unique bespoke technology, proprietary technology, I think is what they say. <laughs> What makes it different from a lot of these other vegan honeys, which are essentially sugar syrup with some flavoring? When my co-founder Aaron Scheller and I launched Melly Bio as a company, what we had in our mind as a focus was not using this technology over that. What we had in our mind was what 
is an approach that will take us from where we are today, which is a situation where you have real honey made by bees, fake honey made by some real honey and rice syrup, and then vegan honey alternatives, which are basically flavored sugars. How do we create a fourth category that's basically something as real as possible, just made without bees? And in that scientific approach, we discovered that we need to use to be fully able to reimagine the honey industry and make 300 varieties without bees, we're basically going to need to use uh, two approaches. One is the plant science and understanding the work around how plants grow, how we can extract certain things from plants, and how those extracted plant compounds can be mixed together in something that you know is a component of honey. And then the other part was how do we tackle the anatomy of a bee? Because as I mentioned, there's a plant stuff and there's everything that's happening in, in, in honeybees, honey stomach, saliva, and, and other organs. So in this journey, we discovered that plant science is going to do a great work to start with. And then we're going to need to build precision fermentation model to basically help us recreate that bee anatomy. In the process of, of company growing, we started learning something very, very interesting that we didn't think it will happen. While focusing on the first part, which is the plant science, we started learning that for certain varieties of honey that are on the lighter side, that are on the more kind of honey used in baking and food applications, we started learning that our prototypes only made using plant science are actually turning to be really, really, really good. And that was that was a surprise for us because we always thought that's going to be just one part of a whole picture. With more people tasting our plant-based honey, which is this product, and us perfecting the plant work, we realized that plant-based honey for certain types like clover honey is actually absolutely perfectly cre uh, recreated just with the plant science approach. And that precision fermentation is actually um, needed to make the process better, make the process more streamlined, help us make other varieties of honey. Almost by an accident, we reached out to our first product, which is fully plant-based honey. It doesn't uh, contain any microbes, any enzymes. This is just plant stuff converted into a product with ingredients list that shows ingredients that if anyone would Google them, would find them to be part of honey. That was eye-opening for us. We were so happy. And Robbie, that was an important moment for the development of our company, our successful fundraise and growing a team of 25 people. Because compared to other companies that are working on other animal products that, that took six, seven, eight years, some of them will take over 10 years to launch their product. Us launching our first product that's fully plant-based while working on precision fermentation for our future products, that set us to be a very unique company in the space. And investors really liked that we were able to get to market uh, faster. We are one of the fastest future of food companies getting from a concept to a market launch in exactly three years. That's amazing. It obviously tastes really good. I mean, so you talked about partnering with restaurants and I think you, you um, I'm in my research, we, there's um, some notes here about 11 Madison Park. 
what are some of the reactions from customers about a product like this? Because as, as you know, as, as we've discussed, it's not just sugared. It's not just a sugar syrup with flavoring. It's so much more than that. There's a much more a complex, I uh, suppose, body to the taste. How are people been reacting to it? And what kind of things have restaurants been doing with it? We love restaurants because, as you can imagine, honey can be part of amazing, amazing meals from sweet to savory applications. Eleven Medicine Park was a great place for us to start because it used to be a non-vegan restaurant that turned almost vegan because they were not able to find great honey that's vegan that would satisfy the, their three Michelin star standards. Uh, our first sample of plant-based honey cost $300,000. It was a tiny jar and my co-founder wow. $300,000. So that was all the, R, R, all the R&D that went, the research and development that went in to produce that. Exactly. Wow. Okay. So, so to, to, get, to get to this spot, we had to invest that money. And we asked ourselves, who should, be the, who should be the team? Who should be the restaurant to open this? And at that time, I came across this podcast with Chef Daniel Hume, uh, the owner of Eleven Medicine, who had an awakening moment during COVID that started making him think about moving away from animal production and switching to plants. And learning that he didn't find a great honey was the challenge that we took. We booked a dinner, my co-founder and I, we booked a dinner in New York City. We went to that place. We had a dinner. We asked them if they had any vegan honey because uh, we're not eating uh, bee-made honey anymore. And they said, we don't. And, and, and I said, I think we can help you guys. Do you have anyone from your team who's willing to spend you know, 10 minutes to talk to us about it? And then all of a sudden, they put together a panel of three people. I, I remember there's this amazing pastry chef, Laura, that was part of that. And they opened this jar and, and we just said, hey guys, just taste this and just let us know what you honestly think. And they opened this jar, smelled it, took a tiny spoon. You know how these Michelin star chefs, they would never take a spoonful of something. Just <laughs> tiny, licked it a little bit. And I started seeing her face change. And then she did something that was outrageous. She double dipped. She went for another one. And I was like, okay, I know what is this. And, and mm. she looked at me and my co-founder. She was like, guys, this is honey. Mm. I was like, yes. But for a chef, that's amazing. For a chef to react like that because uh, she's a chef, right? Yeah, she's a so pastry chef. For, for a, a pastry chef, yeah, patisserie pastry chef. To react like that, a chef, you know, a chef's palate is obviously so attuned to different flavors and tastes. And to get such an honest reaction from someone like that. Um, must be really exciting and that's what's so exciting about you know these alt proteins and these alt alternative sweeteners i suppose we could call this product it's uh, really going to change the the shape and face of the food industry and it really couldn't come at a better time because you know we are in the midst of a climate crisis caused in part because of animal agriculture and the way we eat and live it's just getting these products to market making them affordable for people you know mass producing them is a big job it's a big task. How are you going to do it? How are you going to get your product to millions of people? And what's your plan? <laughs> big question. <laughs> That's the big dream. You know, the, the, the vision of our company is to get the world in this place in which humans and bees thrive. It's creating these sweetly satisfying moment with kindness. How we're going to do that? We're going to do that to a couple of things. We're going to be advancing the science and understanding the world, the kingdom of plants and the kingdom of microbes. Second of all, we're going to be, we're going to be present with delicious, nutritious, 
animal-free products where our customers are. So for example, Melody is our consumer-facing brand that people will have a chance to direct in the US. For all of you out there in my favorite European continent where I come from, I, I got you all covered too. We we landed a, a big business-to-business partnership with a company named Narayan Foods. Together, we co-developed a better foodie brand that's going to hit uh, 75,000 stores in Europe this year, starting with Germany and Austria and Central Europe and, and hopefully UK and Benelux countries very soon. So you, you're going to be able to find us through, through Better Foodie brand. And to all food, beverage, and cosmetics companies who have an amazing opportunity now to join the heroic mission of saving the bees, we got you all covered. We got you all covered with a product that will be one-to-one replacement in your formulations and the product that will help you actually spearhead certain sustainability agendas and not only be able to say that you are doing that. We got you covered with scale. Uh, We're manufacturing thousands of pounds of honey right now. Uh, My experience from from the industry and knowing manufacturing world a little bit more than average uh, food business executive helped us think about the scale. We have an amazing manufacturing team. That 300,000 jar that is now a 45 dollars a direct to consumer product in collaboration with 11 Madison Park in 6 months to a year will be priced at a level that anyone in the US and Europe will be able to afford and you know hopefully 2 years from now we're going to be able to serve almost all the geographies where our customers are that's very exciting i mean you mentioned a few prices there when do you think you'll reach price parity with consumer honey products you probably can appreciate that when you get into a store, you get to see different pricing of honey. Right now, this is obviously you know upscale premium. We didn't build a company to only stay there. We just want to appreciate that you know the scale is happening. For a for a customer to walk into a store in Europe and US, I think uh, towards the end of the next year, they're going to be able to see that also with their money, they're choosing a better future that doesn't cost them more in terms of uh, the money that they have to give in exchange for this delicious and nutritious product. Um, and the same goes for Europe. So I think, you know, with the initial launch, with the you know first year in the market, there's, there's definitely going to be a premium. But with more of you actually switching to this honey, every new jar, everybody who's participating is, in this is actually helping us scale. To, to drive that down. And Make this accessible to everyone, Robbie, because it's important to me. I grew up in Eastern Europe and I've seen how people struggle with all things like economic downturns, civil wars and stuff like that. And the least thing that I want to do as someone who has gone through all these experiences is to make sure that the food that my company makes is made made for everyone and that people feel included in it. Mm, absolutely yeah we we're living in the midst of a cost of living crisis especially in the uk i know it's happening in the united states as well but you know economies of scale is a big part of the conversation when it, when it comes to making new food technologies and there will be certain people who can afford it and those that can't but with more support for the product as they grow and i say this to people about all vegan products because we call it the vegan tax most vegan products are a bit more expensive because they are made by smaller companies in smaller batches so it is more expensive to make 
But as the consumer demand increases, the price of the products will go down and they'll become much more affordable. Uh, and there'll be competition. You, you bet that there will be other vegan honeys coming behind you because being an innovator, you'll know this, that one of the things that you will find, there will be arrows in your back. And that's the way it is in business. No matter how quickly you move as an innovator, there will be people chasing you, right? And going, I want a slice of that honey pie. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited yeah. actually about that. Bring you it know, on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm really excited because of a couple of reasons. You know, you have to, you know, if you if you really are, if you are really a pioneer of a certain industry, you know, you have to be taking this responsibility where you talk about the industry that also happens outside of your company. So I'll give an example. If I truly want the honey industry to become sustainable, I have to acknowledge as an individual and as a business executive that for the industry, it's really great to see more sustainable honey companies not using bees uh, being launched. So from that perspective, that's, that's really exciting. For our team, I know that we have the best team in the world. We have the honey connoisseurs. We have people who know the plants, people who know the microbes. So we're going to be out there, you know, being best, making sure that we spearhead that innovation. But I'm truly ho hoping that the industry will be growing because that's for the benefit of the planet, the bees Man, and humans. Be, be a badass. <laughs> Before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. If you are stuck on a desert island, Darko, and it was just you and a pig, you wouldn't eat the pig because you're a vegan. But if I could leave you with one vegan dish, one music artist, and one book, what would you take with you? Oh, this, uh, this is really amazing. The book that I would like to reread again is Untethered Soul. I really oh, like that book. Um, so that's the book. For something vegan... Uh, because there's a pig around, I would want something that pig and I can share, but not something that the pig would only eat. So I feel like the pig <laughs> would eat all because I think I, I would I would want to sur survive alongside pig. I don't know. I, I think I think I think about I would love to be there with a bottle of our honey and some chickpeas because I would I would glaze <laughs> glaze those chickpeas. In terms of a a music artist, I love EDM. I think I would prefer if Oliver Koletsky would be there. I love his tunes. I've had a chance to hear him in Tulum, Mexico, and uh, I love I love that. So, Untethered Soul, Chickpeas and Melody, and Oliver Koletsky. Mr. Darkomandic, thank you so much for joining us on the PBM Podcast. Pleasure to hear a bit about your product and all your exciting adventures. Thank you so much for having me, Robbie. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next week with more food, fashion, animals, technology, and everything in between. Mm -hmm.